Thank you for singing and for doing the music. That was beautiful. Speaking of singing and music, one time at Omaha Bible Church, we were having a conference on the Reformation. It was Reformation weekend. We had a Reformation scholar written a lot of books about the Reformation, and we're learning about the solas and the conflict between Rome and the Roman Catholicism and the Protestants and Martin Luther. And before one of the sessions, we were singing, and I'm standing next to this Reformation scholar feeling, you know, pastoral pride and talking about the Reformation, and I brought this great speaker in, and so we were in between music leaders, and so a layperson from the church who usually doesn't lead musical worship at our church was leading, and he chose the songs, and so we were singing Faith of Our Fathers. There's a few chuckles. Faith of Our Fathers is written by a, a, a radical anti-Protestant. <laughs> And so I just wanted to die. I mean, I just absolutely wanted to die because I knew this guy was thinking, what kind of church is this? <laughs> Reformation weekend on the Reformation Sunday and faith of our fathers. I want to know why that song's even in the Trinity hymnal, but anyway. So thank you so much for choosing good songs. Uh, it may be leading to your pastor's pride, I don't know. But it's encouraging to the rest of us to hear good songs about our great triune God. I think every session uh, either alludes to or makes deliberate reference to the Great Commission. And I'm going to open with the Great Commission yet one more time because it is, in, is it, it is indeed great. It's great because of the great one who gives it. It's great because it is of great significance. At least from a human perspective, we just heard about the divine perspective, but from the human perspective, none of us would be here if it weren't for the Great Commission. Jesus did say that all authority had been given to him, and he did say, and I quote, though you know it well, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, or behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Indeed, it is a great commission. I'm so thankful for it, for my own soul's sake, but also so that we might know what we're commissioned to do as disciples. And it assumes something really important, doesn't it? It assumes... That disciples who've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, our great triune God, it assumes that those disciples understand Trinitarianism at least enough to allow it to happen to them. It also assumes that they can understand our great triune God at least to the degree that they could explain it to someone else because it does in fact say that disciples are to teach. And what's most, one of the most basic fundamental realities, it's God. And the very first thing you do or have done to you as a Christian is you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the big assumption is that I think we overlook sometimes is... Even as a new disciple, you need to have understanding of who God is. Even if you don't know much, you at least need to know a little about something really important, God. And to at least understand the Trinity to, to enough of a level, enough depth to be able to explain it to someone else. And so what I would like to do in this session is have us think about how we could be discipled in Trinitarianism how can we be trained it means to be taught it means to be trained how can we be trained in Trinitarianism at least to the degree so that we might be able to explain our great God and who he is and who he isn't enough to someone else who would like to know more about Christianity or who is a Christian so let's call this session if you will Trinitarian discipleship how can we be better learners, followers of the triune God so that we can explain something about who he is to others? Because we as disciples, followers of Jesus, learners from Jesus, are called to teach. So you might not be called to teach in an academy. You might not be called to teach in an official capacity. You might not be called to write academic books about Trinitarianism. I know I'm not called to do that. 
But we're all called to teach on one level or another, whether we're parents or grandparents or brothers or sisters or friends. I like the line from one pastor who said, find someone who knows less than you do and teach him, right? And so let's at least be able to disciple the nations. Let's at least be able to disciple brand new, interested. Let's be able to be discipled in Trinitarianism, sometimes hard to say, well enough so that we can disciple others. So I do have seven answers to the question, how can we learn about the Trinity? How can we learn about the Trinity? Seven answers to that question because we want to learn about Trinitarian discipleship. Uh, On my list is not attend a conference, so that could be number eight. Um, There are lots of answers to the question, but I thought since seven is the number of perfection, I should have done three, I guess. Um, Okay, let's do this. Number one. How can we learn about the Trinity? Number one, the triune God. How about that? We can learn about the Trinity from the triune God. In other words, what I want you to do is pray. Let's pray. God, who loves us, redeems us. We've heard so many great things in the last session about this great redemptive work of the Son. He sends His Son to live and to die and be raised on our behalf for our justification. He frees us from sin and its penalty. He's given us so many good gifts. Ask Him. Ask Him. Do you remember what our Lord Jesus said about asking the Father? It's such a beautiful, beautiful promise. Jesus, in Matthew 7, verse 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask Him? How wonderful. We understand how to give good gifts, even as fallen sinners. Our Father who loves us, oh, we know something about how much He loves us because He's provided perfect redemption in His Son for us so that we can have security and assurance. He's not going to withhold any good gift from us. So if you want to know things about Him, ask. God, would you help me? I want to understand. It's no wonder that the the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, we referenced it last night, prays for believers spiritual growth and among other things he says that he prays that they would be increasing in the knowledge of God we can be trained discipled discipled in Trinitarianism let's not assume the obvious let's ask God for help let's ask God to help us to understand let's move to another way of answering the question how can you learn about the Trinity number two be realistic Be realistic. Well, I would be expecting, because God will answer your prayer, but let's also be realistic. And the reason we should be realistic uh, would be because of three important words you know very well from Genesis 1.27. Be realistic because of these three words. God created man. Why would I say that helps us to understand? We should be realistic. We should be realistic when it comes to understanding God Because God created us, and so therefore, as we keep alluding in different sessions, we're different. He's God. He's the infinite God. He's the all-knowing God. He's the all-wise God. He's the incomprehensible God. And I'll use it probably every session, again, because theologians like to do this, and I think it's so helpful as a visual. He's above the line. Okay, we're below the line. So above the line is the one true living God, the only one who's creator, the only one who is God, and we're on a different level, if you will. Everything else is below the line, is creaturely, and so we're not eternal, we're not infinite, we're not all wise, we're not triune. So we should be realistic. There's a creator, creature, distinction psalm 90 verse 2 before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting you are god i like that i like circling the first word of that verse psalm 90 verse 2 before 
in the last three words, you are God. He's the before God. He's the before one. Before anything, He's the self-existent, all-wise, all-knowing, eternal God. And so when I think to myself, I need to learn more about the Trinity. Well, that's good. That's a good desire. God, help me to learn more about who you really are. That's a good desire. But I also need to be humble. I need to be realistic. Even if I know as much as John Owen, and I never will, John Owen will help me and others like him to know I am not God, and I'll never be able to understand God the way God understands things including and i don't want to call god a thing so i just got myself in trouble it's so easy to say the wrong thing when you're talking about the trinity but i'll never be able to know god the way god knows himself he accommodates us we're finite creatures william ames said god as he is in himself cannot be understood by any save himself that's a pretty helpful that's a pretty short sentence for a puritan I like that. We should give him extra marks. God as he is in himself cannot be understood by any save himself. But thankfully we know God has condescended. God has shown us mercy and kindness. And he does make us known truly like we were talking about yesterday. Even though we might not understand him the way he is in his infinity in all of his essence as finite creatures god wants us to know who he is and so he helps us to understand him and yet i want to be realistic i have a question for you when we get to heaven will we know god the way god knows god i don't think so now i worded it carefully i think next time around the next conference where i speak on trinitarianism i'm going to reword it I want, I want you to get it wrong, <laughs> right? You want, it's a provocative question because sometimes we say, well, you know what? When we get to heaven, then we'll know. We don't, we don't know things now, but one day when we get to heaven, then we're going to know everything is the assumption. And the Bible does teach that when we get to heaven, we'll know more. Right now we know in part, right? First Corinthians, we're going to know, we're going to know more fully later when we're glorified. We're not going to struggle. We're going to, we're going to be perfected as perfect as human beings can be. So we do look forward to that. I look forward to knowing God better than I do now. I look forward to that day when I see Him and I'm made like Him, the Son, as the perfect One, incarnate One. I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. But even when we get to heaven, we'll never be, we won't be God. We won't be deified. There still will be mystery that elicits worship and praise. So I want to be realistic, motivated, but realistic. We talked about mystery last night. It's an important category, and it's actually a really good and positive one. Thirdly, how can you learn about the Trinity? How can I learn about the Trinity? How can I be discipleship, discipleshipped? How can I be discipled in Trinitarianism? Number three, read the Bible. Number three, read the Bible. Some of you might like this first on the list. That would be fine. No particular order. Christians have a book, and there's only one book that Christians have, and it is the Bible. Christians believe that the one and only inspired text, the one and only inspired text is God's Word, the Bible. It's so good that we keep referencing the Great Commission because it's so profound. It's not the only text, but we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the name of. Read the Bible, study the Bible. You know, Mike mentioned yesterday we were raised Lutheran and so we learned Trinitarianism even if we didn't learn it from the Bible because we recited certain things. I'm thankful for God's providence like Mike. But when I became a new Christian sometime later as a university student, one of the things I wondered was, is the Trinity right? Is Trinitarianism right? Because now I believe the Bible, I'm reading the Bible, and I didn't really learn the Bible in church where they talked about Trinity, so I was kind of suspicious. And so one good exercise was to just look up Bible verses and to actually do basic roll up your sleeves, sit down, do the work, Bible study, to figure out, 
Is there one God eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I think the answer is yes. But ever so quickly, I would actually like to do that right now with you and not make assumptions. Let's, let, let's, let's look up some Bible verses about the triune God. Let's, let's categorize. Let's come up with some categories. We're going to look up Bible verses. We'll do A, B, and C. We'll look up Bible verses A that teach there's only one God. Uh, another category, B, let's look up Bible verses that teach that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Then look, let's look up some other Bible verses that show distinction. They're not just difference, different, differently named. That's what I would like to do for the next several minutes. I'll go ever so quickly, but I think it actually is helpful to see this. Let's see it in the text itself, that there's one God one God. Psalm 86.10, then Romans 16, then 1 Timothy chapter 6, and then as we referenced last night, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Those are just a sampling of proof texts. There's only one God. Psalm 86.10, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. That's important to know. There's only one God. We could stop there, but let's look at other passages. Romans 16.27, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Amen. So Old Testament, New Testament, monotheistic, there's only one God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, He who is the blessed or blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, only one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4, the well-known Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And based upon what he goes on to say, he clearly doesn't just mean one in intent. There's only one true living God. So I find that to be helpful to know that. Category one for me, a category, the Bible definitely teaches there's only one God. Okay, category B, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God. How about Ephesians 1.3? Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father is God. Pretty straightforward, pretty obvious, but I don't want to make assumptions. I hope you want to see it yourself as well. Now the Son is God. How about John chapter 8? The Son is God. John 8 is such a classic text. It's a wonderful text that Jesus the Son is God. John 8, 56. Your father Abraham, Jesus says, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Right? Who says I am? We know who says I am. And all of those Jews know who says I am. Verse 59 says, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Yeah, Jesus born of a virgin in Nazareth is not older than Abraham. The incarnate one, Abraham's long gone. But he is indeed the divine one, the great I am, pre-incarnate son. Okay, and then finally, the Holy Spirit is God. Acts chapter 5 is probably the classic proof text. Now, you don't need to memorize scripture to be a Christian. You need to know some things to be a Christian. But I do think it's helpful for Christians to at least know some of these basic Bible texts. I was thankful that even though I don't have a great memory, I was thankful that I didn't have to open a systematic theology textbook I didn't have to try to think long and hard. I at least could think of Bible passages where the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Uh, again, you don't have to do it to be a Christian, but I would encourage you to at least be able to find these things in the Bible 
We don't take other people's words for it. Um, okay, I can, I can find a text to, to help teach me those things. And Acts 5 is, is the classic proof text, though there are other texts where we see the Spirit is divine. He is God. Acts 5, it's Ananias and Sapphira and that account. As an aside, when my kids were little and we would do Bible reading at the table, Acts was one of the best ones to do because there's action. So we could act things out, and they always wanted to do Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> Later in life, you're like, I don't want to be Ananias and Sapphira, but it's slain in the spirit and all the bad senses, okay? Um, okay, so in chapter 5, verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So, lying to the Holy Spirit, and that would actually be enough. Because you don't, you, you don't lie to an it, okay? You, 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 lie, you lie to a person. And the Holy Spirit is not the force. Um, the Holy Spirit is actually a person we're going to see. But even more so, the Holy Spirit is none other than God. Because when we read through the account and we work our way through for the sake of time, I'll just drop down. Oh, we can, we, we'll do verse 4. Then we'll do verse 4. While it, while it remained unsold, this property, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So there we have it. Holy Spirit, you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. So the Spirit is divine as well. So one God, we see it in the Bible as clear as day. Then we have the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. So now we have the C category, if you will. Oh, but before we get to the C category, I have some questions. Father's God, Son is God, Spirit is God. There's only one God. Here's my first question. Is the Father the Son? No. Is the Son the Spirit? No. Is the Spirit the Father? No. And we could come up with other formulations, but letter C, there's distinction. There's distinction. What we're doing right now is basic Bible study, and we're doing the hard work, if you will, of looking at the data and categorizing it. Because as I said last night, it's not alphabet soup. So now we say, therefore, based upon Jesus' baptism, that text, Matthew chapter 3, that's the text we'll go to, there actually is a distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're not just different names. They're not just wearing different masks. They're not just in different modes. There's actual distinction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the baptism is another one. I'm thankful I didn't have to search out a book for this. I remember, I would encourage you to remember, all three members, all three persons, if you will, are present at the same time at Jesus' baptism, and yet there's distinction. Okay, Matthew 3.16. After being baptized, Jesus, and it's easy to remember, right? The 3.16s are easy. It's fascinating how many important texts are 3.16 texts. Matthew 3.16, after being baptized, Jesus, the Son, came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and He saw the Spirit of God. He saw it. So there's not some kind of modalism and changing going on, no. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting, uh, lighting on Him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, so now distinction, this is my beloved Son. Obviously, that's the Father if He's talking about His beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So we have to draw a conclusion then. There is one God. And the Father is God, and the Spirit is God, and the Son is God. So each member of the triune Godhead, each person are equally God. And then we draw one more conclusion. That there's a distinction between them. There's a difference. Now, could we draw more conclusions from the Bible? For sure. But I at least wanted to do the exercise and show you how, how, how we do this. And I realize most of you already know this. But it's not from creeds and confessions that we get Trinitarianism. 
It's not from creeds and confessions. It's from the Bible that we get Trinitarianism. Categorizing texts, doing some of the basic work like we just did. How about this? Is the Bible enough? That's a scary question for me to ask, especially based upon the way I'm going to answer it. Of course the Bible is enough, right? I believe in sola scriptura. But what does that mean? Of course, the Bible is the only inspired text that we have from God. It's the only special revelation we have from God. I'm a Protestant, after all. I'm a Reformed Christian. I'm a Christian Christian. I believe this is true. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Okay? So the Bible is absolutely, most positively enough. And you're waiting for the but. I don't even want to say but. Yet, I'll use a synonym. (laughs) Yet, you need to know that every heretic who's ever been a heretic has tried to argue their case with Bible verses. And so, we get hopefully better at arguing with Bible verses and showing every heretic that the Bible verses they're using aren't their verses, they're our verses. But it's hard. It's really, it, it's, it, there's some hard work involved in doing this. So what I would like to do next is number four. We're going to answer that question. This leads us to number four. How can I learn about Trinitarianism? How can I learn about the triune God? Number four, read the Bible with the church. Read the Bible with the church. So the Bible is the only inspired text that we have. We should affirm as the Protestants did, and if we're Protestants, in sola scriptura. But you should also know that the Protestants, the Reformers, by sola scriptura did not mean what we call solo scriptura. They did. Well, here's what that meant. And oftentimes, even today, Christians don't realize this. What they meant was, we don't need any new revelation beyond what we have. So they're countering the Pope in Rome who claims to be able to receive new revelation. Or the crazy radical Anabaptists who are claiming new revelation. And they say, no, we believe in sola scriptura. We do, the sufficiency of special revelation that we have received we don't need any more new special revelation read second timothy 3 16 and 17 that's what they meant but they did not mean that we shouldn't learn anything from gifted teachers they did not mean we shouldn't pay attention to anyone else ever regarding anything regarding the doctrine of god including we shouldn't listen to sermons because after all we believe in the sufficiency of scripture it would become ridiculous So let's read the Bible, as my friend R. Scott Clark likes to say. I think I stole it from him. Read the Bible, but read the Bible with the church. The church present now, other Christians. The church before us, because there's been a church longer than five minutes ago. And hopefully they'll be reading with us into the future. Let's read it with the church. There's been a lot of water under the bridge, so to speak. And it would be humble, how about this, to acknowledge that you're not the first Christian. It would be a good idea. And it would be denigrating or undercutting to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead, to suggest or imply that he'd never been working in the life of the church until I came along right? Think about it. The height of arrogance. This is what C.S. Lewis calls, and I know my brother is not a huge C.S. Lewis fan, so I'm going to quote him. <laughs> sibling, sibling rivalry. <laughs> we, we agree on the criticisms, but even the stop clock is right twice a day. He, <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> he talks about chronological snobbery. See, that, that, that's a good quote. That's helpful chronological snobbery as in people who don't read history people who don't pay attention to history and how the spirit of god i'm going to borrow it now and use it for my own means people who don't pay attention to how the spirit of god led in the past 
That's just arrogance. That's just pride, even if we couch it under humility. I just read the Bible. Well, that's good to read the Bible and to believe sola scriptura. It's the only special revelation that you need. You don't need any more. But it was never intended to mean you don't pay attention to history. It was never intended to mean you don't pay attention to other Christians, like Christians who've gone before us. Read the Reformers. They pay tons of attention. It's, it's almost embarrassing how much John Calvin quotes Augustine because he's acknowledging the work of God in the past and where Augustine's wrong, call him out for it. But he actually was right about some things. And so I want to say, read the Bible with the church. Don't commit chronological snobbery. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. It'll probably be square. And also think about Jude 3 that we read last night. The faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. And it wasn't five minutes ago. The faith. The the settled body of Christian doctrine. Once and for all, delivered to the saints, I'm going to suggest to you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, somewhat 2,000 plus years ago. We could quibble about exact timing when that happened, but it wasn't in my lifetime. And so, Pat needs to act like it wasn't in my lifetime and try to figure out what the faith is. And if it was delivered a long time ago by the power of the Spirit who works in and among His people... I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to read the Bible with the church. I'm going to read the Bible with the church and encourage you to do the same. That begs the question, how do we do that? How do we read the Bible with the church? Well, one way we read the Bible with the church is we read history. But there were lots of different people who wrote in history. Some good people, some bad people, all kinds of people, strange people. So we're going to pay attention to history. But one thing we're going to do is we're going to read confessions. Creeds and catechisms. Oh, we're going to get to it. They might be wrong. We're going to read confessions. Uh, To confess means to agree. If you confess to a crime, you're agreeing with what you're charged with. And so Christians before us have agreed on a lot of things. And they've agreed on a lot of things regarding the meaning of the Bible. So as we talked about last night, uh, a confession is not inspired. No one should ever believe that it is. It's not new revelation. But what it is, is it's writing down what we think the Bible means by what it says. And a good confession acknowledges that it and nothing else, no one else is inspired. Only the Bible is. But let's write down what we think the Bible means by what it says confessions are helpful to pay attention how has the church understood the meaning of the bible the triune god in the past that that would be important to do let's pay attention uh, pay attention to such things i don't want to get us too far off track but did you know that for example at the westminster assembly so we're coming out of the Reformation, Catholicism, the debate. People are wondering, what do we believe? What don't we believe? Where are we still, uh, where are we like the Catholics? Where are we not like the Catholics? Uh, so help us. Let's help the churches. Let's help the pastors. Let's help the congregations understand what, how we understand the Bible because the Bible's a big book. Oh, and then there was just a printing press not very long ago, and now we all have Bibles to interpret for ourselves. How do we do this? Let's write things down that are going to be helpful. But for example, at the Westminster Assembly, we have well over 100 pastors from all around different regions, and they come there and meet for years. They have lay people also apart attending the Westminster Assembly from different regions, meeting for years. And did you know this? They had a lot of disagreements. They really did. It's interesting to find out, well, these people had this view on certain things, and these people over here had this view on certain things. And so what they had to do was fight about it and say, but here's what we all agree to. This is what we can, we're going to have our different views on the timing of the millennium. There were pre-mill and amill people there, for example. But here's what we can agree to. This is the Catholic faith, lower C, the universal faith. This is how we can all agree. So when we read the Bible with the church, one way we can do that by, is, is by reading what their conclusions were. 
Uh, and it's actually really important that we do that, lest we not be cultic very quickly. Now, you might ask yourself the question, what if the confessions are wrong? Then we shouldn't believe them. We should revise them. We should change them. We should always, even based upon what the confessions say themselves, evaluate and, and scrutinize because the confession is not inspired. Only, it's not special revelation. Only the Bible is. But I'm far more likely to agree with all of the Christians who came before me about the Trinity than I am to agree with you if you disagree and you have a Bible verse. Oh, I don't want to offend any of you. Um, I'm far more likely to agree with all Christians who've come before me on this than I am with a celebrity pastor who says something else. I would rather agree with the universal big group who had disagreements, but they all agree on one eternal God, always being God, always will be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think I'm going to side with the big group instead of the one crazy individual who has a Bible verse that they think is true, but their understanding of it's crazy. And if the confessions are wrong, how about this? I think it's probably a bad idea to start over from scratch. So let's say they get it, something wrong. I'm still going to pay attention to how they got it wrong. Do you guys remember some of you who were old enough when the space shuttle Challenger blew up? A great crisis in our country. I remember 1986. I remember because one of our science teachers at my high school was a final candidate to go. I think the woman who did go was Christy McCullough, I think was her name. It broke apart in 73 seconds, killing all seven crew members. Tragic event. I remember lots of the details. But you know what they didn't do at NASA or whoever it was who was involved in all of it? They didn't throw away all of the R&D. They didn't fire all of the engineers and hire English majors and start over. What they did is they kept all of the R&D. I bet some people got fired. But they didn't start over from scratch. Let's learn what we did right. Let's learn what we did wrong so that we can move forward and be successful. I had to use that illustration with a guy who is a, a, a physics PhD and his wife was a biblicist and they were upset that we ever paid attention to any creeds and confessions. And when I used that illustration, he said, I don't like English majors. <laughs> Never mind the, the fact that the guy he's talking to has a minor in English. I didn't bring that up. Uh, <laughs> I didn't bring that up. So no offense, English majors. Let's at least learn from the past because there is a lot of water under the bridge. Though they weren't perfect, we're not going to scratch all of the R&D lest we all of a sudden come up with something that will never work in a million years. Well, I'd like to talk more about that one because it's actually really important in our day. But we're going to do number five, six, and seven. How can we learn about the Trinity and be discipled in Trinitarianism? Number five, be conservative. Be conservative. And some of you are thinking about politics, and I don't mean that, but it actually might help you think about what I do mean. Be conservative as in, be slow to get rid of tradition. Be slow to discount things that maybe you just don't understand. Maybe we need to get rid of certain things, but be cautious about getting rid of certain things. That's what it means to be, at least on one level, to be conservative. So, humble. The other day I was trying to talk to my 14-year-old son, and we were talking about politics, and we were talking about social issues, and we were talking about what it means to be conservative. And, and I said, you know, one thing, even though it sounds kind of, one thing to remember is, it means to be slow to condemn the past. It means to be slow to get rid of things that came before you just because you don't understand why they're there. And that's one way to kind of understand being conservative. And so I said, maybe we should get rid of some of our traditions in America or in the world. But before we just discount everybody who's ever come before us, we might want to stop and say, why? 
Why did they have these values? Why did they have these customs and traditions? And did they serve a good purpose? And what will happen if we get rid of them? And this, this is not a very profound illustration, but we happen to be driving uh, on the interstate and they're, and they're putting up a new high-end, I think it's a Porsche dealership. Beautiful, fancy, super nice-looking uh, auto dealership. But right there by the interstate, you've got this super ugly fence. This super ugly, oh, what are the, the metal kind of fences. What are those? Chain-link fences. Boy, that Porsche dealership would look a lot better if they would just tear down that fence. And so I said to my son, I said, you know what? But it's not their fence to begin with, and there's probably a reason why that fence is there. They at least need to do some research before they just tear it down because they think it looks stupid because it might be there and there might be consequences for tearing the fence down. Not a perfect illustration, but what I'm getting at is before you just say, everybody who came before me, they're crazy, and they said these wor weird words for strange reasons, and I don't know why, so let's just wipe it all out. Let's be conservative and ask why. Why did they say it that way? Was there a reason they said it that way? Let's be slow. Let's be careful. So if I read the confession, this is the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, chapter 2, God and the Holy Trinity. Let's work on being conservative or not. And why would we would be tempted not to be? It says, The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence... We've got to get rid of that word because I don't know what that means. Well, sometimes it's translated person. That makes more sense to me. But actually, it's good to leave it in there that way because it might cause you to do a little research as to why they're being careful because sometimes we think person today and we think human and now we're on the wrong track. So it's actually a good word to, to leave in there. Whose subsistence or person, let's just say it that way for understanding, is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended but by any, by any but himself. I, I think we could leave that in, but I, you know, that seems kind of philosophical. Maybe there's a good reason why they said it that way. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality. He's without parts. What's that about? Or without passion. God is not passionate. I think we should probably get rid of that. Oh, wait a second. There might be a reason why they said God didn't have passions. I'm going to be conservative. Maybe there was a good reason they put that there. He doesn't have passions because he doesn't have human emotions. He is the God who doesn't change. So if we, he has passions like humans do, is he better when he's showing negative passions or is he better when he's showing positive passions? You say he's never better. He's perfect and unchanging. Maybe there's a reason why they said He's without passions. And then we start having to come up with new ways to describe the human emotions ascribed to God so that we can understand Him, but we have to understand that the human language is used because we're humans, but we ought not think of God just like we think about ourselves. It gets, it gets good. It's exciting. Interesting. God doesn't have passions the way we have them so they say something like that he doesn't fluctuate emotionally he's not unstable well maybe another part of that he's without parts god is without parts well i think we've learned enough in the last day we'd say yeah that that's true and we even talked about divine sim simplicity god is simple do you think god is simple i hope you do you say but what do you mean Simplicity. I read it yesterday. I'll read it again. Simplicity is that God is not made up of parts. He's not composite or a compounded being. He is his attributes. His essence is his attributes and his attributes his essence. All that is in God is simply God. We're trying to get at the fact that he's not made up of this composite part, this part, this part. God is simply God. And so the confessions say these kinds of things. They give us good categories. They give us a good vocabulary a good vocabulary from the past that maybe we shouldn't jettison right away just because we don't understand it. 
At this point in time, the pastor tries to decide what he should still include and what he should take out. So many things. Somebody said to me last night, rather sweetly, they said, I just want to tell you, pastor, they said something like this, I just want to tell you, all those big words you were using and all of those different things, I just want to tell you that I think God is awesome. And I said, amen. I'm glad. Thank you for telling me that. Thank you for telling me that. We don't need to know all of these things to, to get to heaven. We don't need to understand and comprehend these things to be Christians. But we do want to think more appropriately. We do want to grow. We do not want to remain spiritually immature. We do want to be able to contend earnestly for the faith. And so we talk about these things, and we read the Bible with the church, and we try to understand the Bible with the church, and we're conservative when it comes to saying, I don't care whatever came before me. I can do a better job. Probably not, right? Probably not. So praise the Lord. You don't have to know the word subsistence to go to heaven. Amen? But it's probably for good reason people used it before us. Well, we need to do six and seven so we can wrap, wrap up this session. How can I or you learn more about the Trinity? Know the heretics. Know the heretics. There's a helpful book we use at Omaha Bible Church now and then by Justin Holcomb, and it's called Know the Heretics. And uh, I liked it when someone in our church taught that class. It was a good, it was a good Sunday school class sign. Know the heretics. <laughs> Visitors don't know what to do at Omaha Bible Church, but that's okay. It's a super helpful book because if we get to know the enemy, it helps us. To, if we get to know what's wrong at times, it helps us to know what's right. And it's a very simple, easy to read book, knowing the heretics so that we don't mime them, so that we don't ape them, so that we don't imitate them. I think a lot of what's going on even right now in evangelicalism wouldn't be going on if we understood Arianism better. If we understood Arianism better, we wouldn't sound like Arius. But when we say, you know what, no creed but the Bible, it's just me, and I don't need to pay attention to history, uh, well, you know, you sound like an Arian. <laughs> and if you just knew about the debate that blood, sweat, and tears by your fellow believers were shed over, and you appreciated your history a little bit better, you wouldn't sound like a heretic. Arians, denying the deity of Christ, or making him lesser by having him be eternally submitting to the Father, which is Arian heresy. He submits in the incarnation. He submits when he comes, but not in eternity. Know the heretics. Last night we talked about modalism. And you're supposed to say, that's modalism, Patrick, right? Three, di three different forms of God. So he was the Father, becomes the Son, becomes the Spirit. That's a heresy. We should just know that, and so we wouldn't use all the crazy illustrations we use. So I'm being conservative. I'm understanding heresy so I don't have to commit all of the same heresies. Well, enough of all of that kind of stuff, at least for now. Let's end this finally. Oh, what, maybe one more thing about the heretics and, and heresies. I was thankful that at the church where I pastor, someone recently uh, brought the premarital book to the attention of the elders that we use. It's a well-written book. I like the book, and somebody brought it to our attention at an elder meeting, and they said, you understand this book teaches heresy. That's when you say, oh, really? <laughs> sure enough, there it is, eternal subordination of the Son, and that will ha help you to have a better marriage. Well, it won't. It'll help you to be a heretic, and it won't help your marriage at all. And so we had to say, I guess we're not going to use that book anymore and start looking for a different book to be using. So one of our pastors found an old, dusty, silly-looking, kind of outdated-looking book with an outdated-looking cover. Written by this guy from Philadelphia, moved to Florida, now he's in heaven named R.C. Sproul. And it was really interesting to reread that book. It's, I don't even know the name of it. I don't have it in front of me. Intimate Marriage. And it was really interesting to reread that book. And it does have a new cover now. So it looks up to date. Super helpful. Super helpful. Basic. Common sense. 
and not heretical. I do want you to know that R.C. understood the doctrine of the Trinity probably better than most. And he understood in part because of the Bible, first and foremost, but also because he's a good historian paying attention to the heresies that have come before us. Okay, number seven, finally, speaking of books, how can we learn more about the Trinity? The, the list could go on and on. We'll just do seven of these, and I would say read good books. Read good books. I'm so thankful for your church and for its elders and leaders and the hungry, hunger that you have and all of your good books back there. This comes back to reading the Bible with the church, doesn't it? In part, it does. We're paying attention to those who've gone before us. Read the kinds of books that exemplify the kinds of things that we've even been talking about. They're paying attention to the past. We say read old books. True, read old books. But I see also the need to read new books that pay attention to the old books. They have one eye on the old book and they have one eye on the current debate and heresy to help us to say, you realize there's a current heresy going on here. Because if I only read the old books, maybe I'm not going to get those things. So some of my favorite books are the old books, but they're the new books that pay attention to the old. So I have a few books here I will recommend. Your pastor's been recommending it. John said Matthew Barrett's book, Simply Trinity. There's another helpful little book, an introduction called The Trinity by Scott Swain. It's called The Trinity. What a name. By Scott Swain. There's also a book that's hard to read. It's back there on the table, I believe, but it's important because it blew the whistle on a lot of this current modern-day shenanigans. It's called All That Is In God by James Dolezal. All That Is In God. And I know we're doing a deep dive here, and I'm going to wrap this up, but a really interesting thing about that book is R.C. Sproul's endorsement of it before he went to heaven. And he went on and on about how important this book is in the life of the church right now because so many evangelicals are functional Aryan heretics. And so, again, if you want to try, if you want to listen to that interview, you could look up, RC, you could search R.C. Sproul. It's Stephen Nichols inter, interviewing R.C. Sproul regarding James Dolzell. So it's, on a, it's, a, it's hard to find. It's on open books openbookpodcast.com, but it's a, it's a really compelling kind of interview. Uh, R.C. thought everybody should read that book now because of the health of the church. Okay. I think I want to end by quoting my favorite Arminian. I never quote Arminians in the positive, but I do. I, I, the Lord works and is kind and gracious. My favorite Arminian says this, the most important thing about you is what you think of when you think about God. Probably true. Probably true. And now, A.W. Tozer knows better. He's not an Arminian anymore. Right? Father, thank you so much for today, and thank you for the session. Thank you for the men and women and boys and girls who have been so alert and attentive, eager. We're thankful that you give us desires to know things, and you give us desires to live for your honor and glory. Thank you so much that salvation is simple, that salvation can be received even from the, the youngest to the oldest, because salvation is of the Lord. We're thankful for the glorious gospel of Christ, but we do want to grow. And we do want to grow so that we praise you for who you are as our great Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.